Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. We're joined today by Connor Gordon, co-manager of the new Fidelity Global Small Cap Opportunities Fund, which was launched in September 2022 for Canadian investors. This fund may be new to the public, but it builds off the success of an institutional version of the fund that Connor and Chris Malodzinski have been managing since 2019. Today, Connor shares the fund strategy and the appeal of global small caps with host Pat Bolland. A key takeaway is that this fund focuses on two types of mispricing, targeting both high-quality growth at a reasonable price and value stocks with a catalyst for improvement. Rather than being labeled as a growth or value fund, their style encompasses both. Prior to his portfolio management responsibilities, Connor joined Fidelity in 2009 as a research analyst covering the industrial, tech, and healthcare sectors and managed the corresponding components of the Fidelity Canadian Disciplined Equity Fund. From 2013 to 2019, he was a generalist analyst with responsibilities across all sectors and geographies with a focus on small and mid-cap securities. Today's podcast was recorded on December 9th, 2022 and was recorded in front of a live audience at our December Focus 2022 event for financial advisors. As this was from a live event, you may hear a few slides being referenced. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, so, you know, I've been with the Canadian team uh, since 2009 full-time, 2007 as an intern, actually. but my journey with Fidelity started a little Hold bit on, where, where did, you go? did you go to school in Canada then? In Canada, yeah. So I went to Laurier oh. um, and convinced Andrew Marchese, our CIO, to take me on as an intern uh, after my second year at university. So Fidelity has been the uh, you know, first and only place I have ever worked. Wow. Okay. Sorry. I interrupted. Yeah. So you know, I think one of the unique things about me, I think, is that my Fidelity journey started before 2007. So I grew up in a small town uh, called Stratford, a couple hours west of Toronto. My mom was a, a server at a cafe. And every Saturday morning, my dad would take us down to the cafe. And he would get a cap coffee, and I would read the newspaper and flip through the sports pages. And at some point, I must have flipped too far because I came across the business section. And I found the stock tables. You know, at, the t- at that time, the, the stock tables were in the back of the newspaper. And I kind of said, like, what is this? And my dad said, well, that's the stock market. And you know, as a 12-year-old, when you find out that Coca-Cola and Wrigley are publicly listed, and I said, you know what, sorry, I can own the pop company and the candy company? This is something I'm interested in. Um, so you know, I went across the street, and I bought my first investment book. And that investment book was One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch, uh, the Fidelity portfolio. Manager. Really? So that was my first exposure to Fidelity. And it's that ethos of go anywhere, turn over as many rocks as you can to find the hidden gem, the neglected small cap that we really bring to this new product. Okay, and you and Chris, what is your role together? 
So uh, a little unique for you know, uh, you know, funds within the Canadian group, this is one of the first funds that is co-managed. So Chris and I, uh, back in the middle of 2018, Andrew Marchese, our CIO, came to us and said, you know, we, this is, a, this is a, an asset class that we think you guys would be great for. So we had worked together for 10 years. Uh, Chris had covered uh, consumer, media, gold, um, you know, insurance, and real estate. And I was kind of like the complete opposite. I was like the nice compliment. I had done tech, industrials, healthcare, business services. Um, and then I took a bit of a, a detour, as Charles said. Um, I was a generalist. So I um, worked directly with Dan DuPont, Hugo Lavallee, Steve McMillan for six years. And I was the go-anywhere analyst. So basically anything other than banks and commodities, I was the person looking at the small caps. So it was a great um, education and um, training ground to get exposure to you know, a number of different portfolio managers that had different styles. Um, and you, you could kind of really, you know, I think that's one of the great things about Fidelity is you, know, you get to find what works and more importantly, what style works best for you. Um, so when, when Andrew put this together, he said, you both have this passion for bottom-up stock picking. You have been working together for 10 years, you're style consistent, and you have different backgrounds. We want to give you the biggest opportunity set possible to go out and find 40, 50 of the most mispriced stocks you can find and put those in a, por a concentrated portfolio to generate alpha for clients. Okay, back in those days, the analysts used to be part of the disciplined equity fund and, and they'd come in and they'd run money. So if you, did you do that, number one, and yep. did you do only small cap even then? No, so you know, I think you know, as an analyst, you kind of go into this training program uh, on Team Canada where you, know, you, you show up day one and it's like, well, here's your sector. So I had tech and healthcare, and it was, you know, here's your 20, 30 stocks. You've got six months, go, go get ready. Um, and, you know, six months later, you know, you know, these, you know, six months, a year later, you know these companies inside and out, and then it's, you know, it's the next step. You're gonna be managing money. So the, you know, and then that's, that kind of serves two roles. It gives you exposure to managing money, but it also forces you to express your best ideas so that you know, other people, other um, you know, uh, portfolio managers and people within the firm know exactly, you know, put your money where your mouth is, which stocks do you add, do you really, really like? Um, so did that for three years, or four years, I guess. Um, and then 2013 came along and we had launched, you know, Steve had, uh, Steve McMillan had the US small cap fund, Dan um, was kind of doing North Star with Joel, um, and there was a gap. And I think there was this great opportunity um, to move outside of the Canadian group and really kind of give some um, analytical horsepower to, to some of the other funds and, and, and try and find some best ideas that were outside of Canada on a global basis. Okay. So then walk me through uh, the process that you go through now that you developed and, and how you developed that. And yeah. I think we have a chart for that as well. Yeah, so the, right. the, 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 our process we, we kind of simplify as quality plus change equals mispricing. And quality, I think, means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And we boil it down to four things. So profitability, predictability, growth and safety. 
So, you know, profitability, we have this novel concept that companies should actually generate cash flow before we, we invest in them. Um, I think that, that kind of has been lost over the last uh, three years, and I think people have paid the price for that over the last 12 to 18 months. But we start with that basis. Does this company earn money? Do they earn a high return on their tangible capital? And if that's kind of like checklist number one. Uh, then we kind of say predictability. So, you know, can we look out two or three years and be pretty darn confident of what this company is going to earn within a reasonable range of outcomes? It's why we avoid things like commodities, um, things that are hypercyclical, uh, things that have a lot of technology risk. If we can't look out three years and be reasonably confident of what this company is going to earn, throw it off. We're not going to invest in it. We're not going to put clients' uh, capital at risk. Um, and then growth. I think, you know, one of the things that I think people have been sucked into over the past, you know, people look at a, at a low PE and they think the stock is cheap. And I, I tell our analysts, you know, cheapest is most expensive. If you buy a cheap stock and it's getting disrupted and the earnings are going away, it's not so cheap. So that's kind of the next, the next barrier. And then safety. I think when we're dealing in small caps, um, you know, we, we're, we're kind of hyper sensitive to risk. And risk on you know, a safety perspective is you know, kind of going back to that, that recurring nature of the business. Do they, are they predictable? Um, is there modest cyclicality? Do they have customer concentration? What's the balance sheet look like? I think that's you know, an element of analysis that's been forgotten maybe in the last 10 years when you know, even maybe some of the worst issuers could roll their debt at low rates. Um, that's not the case anymore. So, you know, I think if you have an overlevered balance sheet, your capital structure's out of whack, that's a, that's, a, that's a pertinent risk that, you know, people have started to pay attention to in the last three to six months, but it's something I think we've paid attention to since we've been managing the fund. Um, you know, quality, I think, so that, that's kind of the quality element, and, but when people are looking at stocks and quality stocks, I think in general most people can tell you, okay, this is a good business, this is a bad business. And many of you, as you probably know, the market is hyper-efficient. And it, you know, so it, you know, stocks are, are typically efficiently priced, but there's a flaw in the market. And the flaw is that the market extrapolates in a relatively narrow range of outcomes. So how we differentiate is we wait for a change or a dislocation. We wait for companies, for a good company, to undergo some sort of, some sort of event or transition um, where we can form a view of the future that is materially different than the market thinks. So, and when we can do that, we can exploit the mispricing. And I think it, you know, it's kind of a nebulous concept, but I think an, an exa- you know, I can give you an example of, of the type of thing that we are looking for. So a company that we, we kind of owned at the start of the fund um, they're kind of going back three, four year, three years ago. It's a company called DeMont. And DeMont is a Danish hearing aid company. And as you might imagine, you know, hearing aids are, they're an oligopoly controlled by four European companies. So they, you know, they, don't, they don't even really exist in North America. Hearing aids, you can probably guess, are not a bad industry to be in. The population's aging, technology's getting better, so people are getting hearing aids um, earlier. So I had followed this company for 10 years. Um, it, the company, you know, high single-digit grower, always too expensive. Created 25-plus times earnings basically forever, all the times that I had followed it. But around the time we launched the fund, something happened. They got hit by a cyber attack. So everyone is, is terrified that they're going to miss the next two quarters on earnings. There's going to be an earnings disappointment. The stock trades down to 15 times earnings. That's the dislocation that we're waiting for. That's the mispricing, where we can look through the uncertainty of the next six months, maybe nine months, and look out two or three years, say this company is going to continue to grow their earnings 
and we think that stock is going to re-rate from 15 times earnings back to 25 times earnings, and we can make you know 50 to 100 um, percent in, in call it three years. And you know, I think luckily, uh, you know, that's exactly what happened. I think when you when you can separate temporary issues from permanent issues in these stocks, it's when you can kind of create a lot of, of return for investors. You don't think of a cyber attack affecting a hearing aid company? Oddly, in the, the yeah, I think in, in many some cases that you know you get hacked and their ERP system gets attacked and so they lose orders and it's happened in a, in a few instances. But yeah, in general, yeah, I would kind of agree. You wouldn't think of you know data loss really hurting hurting a hurting a manufacturing company, for example. But yeah. it happens from time to time. It's interesting. You talk about profit and predictability. Then you talk about growth and safety. To me, I'm hearing growth and value, yep. and I think. You probably fit into both categories, but I'd love your opinion on that. Yeah, I think you know people want to put us in a box, and the unsatisfying answer is that we are neither growth nor value. We are um, style agnostic investors, and you know I think one of the things that we try to do. I think if you look back, we, you know we want to stay in the middle. I think we want to generate returns without taking large style bets. And I think you know, the last 18 months of kind of two years have probably shown um, you know, the risk or the danger of, of, of betting on a big style factor. So you know, the last 12 to 18 months, if you had purchased you know, speculative, unprofitable companies, you probably made a lot of money from 2017 to 2021. Um, and you probably lost a lot of money um, from 2021 to now. Um, you know, conversely, if you had made a large factor bet on, on um, you know, value stocks or low PE stocks, you probably underperformed for a very long period up, up um, prior to that. And I think our, ours is a third way. We start with that baseline of quality, and then we wait. We wait for that change or that dislocation where we can um, you know, generate consistent returns over time. And one of the things that, you know, the types of situations that we're looking for they happen every day. Um, you know, one of the things that, that we do that I think is maybe a little bit differentiated is, is that we don't really do financial screens. And I know that sounds a little odd, but we screen um, for, you know, in many cases for events. So when we're talking about change, it could be a new product. It could be a, um, the company's getting into a new business. Maybe there's a new management change. Um, the company's doing an acquisition or they're, they're, they're selling a business. These are the types of things that that trigger us to say, here's an idea, we need to go and follow up and, and do the work. Um, and and that because of we have this, this constant funnel of new ideas, we don't have to go out and make a big bet on, mm -hmm. here's the growth, or we need to, or hey, you know what, we need to make a big, big um, bet on a sector, like on oil and gas, or we need to make a big bet on, on tech, or we need to go make a big bet on a geography, like Europe or North America. We're really focused on idiosyncratic opportunities and generating consistent returns over time. And I think that's one of the things that we bet, I think has really differentiated our performance over time. So regardless of, you know, we've kind of seen three markets since the start of, uh, well, since the, the launch in November 2019, we're kind of into COVID, out of COVID, um, you know, the, the bust, and then now kind of the um, inflationary environment that we've been experiencing since the, uh, the invasion in Ukraine in February. We, as a matter of fact, we do have a chart okay. of uh, your performance over time and Fidelity Global Small Cap Opportunity Institutional Trust. So this is not the retail product that we're talking this about This is the right retail now. product. Yeah. So this is, this is this our is your, institutional your product, record, if you yeah. will. Right. 
So this was only available until recently to institutions. Correct. I think we're just, you know, I think one of the, the exciting things is, you know, we're, we're on the institutional side and then we kind of greatly got this opportunity to, to launch a retail. And I think we're really excited to get this offered to retail clients. I think the, the asset class is incredibly alpha rich. Um, and I think when you have this blank canvas of, you know, this big global universe, and then you combine that with the fidelity research machine that we have to go anywhere and find the most mispriced stocks, I think that's a really attractive uh, proposition for, for, um, for clients. And, you know, I think, I, I, I believe it, uh, you know, 100% of my investable net worth is, is now invested in, in, in the fund. Um, so hopefully for my kids' sake, uh, it's, a, it's a good it works. Yeah. Uh, okay. But when you come up with a retail product, one thing that concerns retail people is obviously the smoothness of the ride. They love the returns, but is there a lot of volatility because you're built into small caps? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a perception that volatile small caps are risky. And I think we want to fight that perception. The average market cap of the stock in our fund is $5 billion US, okay? So if you were to compare that in Canada, the average small cap market cap is $350 million. So we are investing in companies that are 10 to 15 times the size of a typical small cap in Canada. And actually, that $5 billion US, you'd actually sneak into the bottom of the TSX 60 if you were to do it by market cap. So when we talk about small caps in a global context, we're probably talking more on mid and large caps in Canadian context. So we are not investing in hyper-speculative, you know, two guys with a map and a, and a, and a hole in the ground or uh, people in a garage with a, with a science project on a whiteboard. These are big, mature, profitable businesses, but ones that we you know, typically invest or uh, operate globally and ones that still have nice, long runway to continue to grow and compound value over a long period of time. Uh, we actually have a chart that talks about the value of small cap uh, right now as well, and the case for small caps. Can you talk to what we're looking at here and why? Why yeah. in 08, 09 was that such a big spike up and then? Uh, so, you know, I think that this is, um, you can kind of see it, the, the historical uh, valuation of small caps, right? And I think one of the things that, um, you know, we are trying to, to get across is people are maybe hesitant or afraid to, to dive into small caps. And, you know, our pitch is kind of, well, you know, these stocks have already derated. Um, a lot of the pain has already been felt. And, you know, when we look at the valuation, particularly, um, you know, against, against large cap peers, I think we were looking the other day, and maybe the, and just to keep it in like US terms, I think the S&P 500 is maybe 15, 16 times earnings. You know, the Russell 2000, if you exclude companies that lose money, is like 10, 11 times earnings. Mm. And across any time series, you know, that is, that is at historical lows. You can kind of go back across any time series. So the, I think the, the case for investing in small caps versus large caps is incredibly compelling today. Um, I think there's still a lot of, you know, uh, on a relative basis, it, it feels a little bit to me, and I clearly, you know, wasn't around, but it feels a little bit to me like, the, you know, the post bubble where you had this big run up in, in stocks. And, and there was this, this, you know, if you look at the Russell and, you know, there were, there were companies trading at, you know, consumer industrial companies trading at 10, 11, 12 times earnings that still had, you know, positive 
earnings trajectory while a big part of the market was, you know, the air was coming out of the, out of the balloon. So I think, you know, you need to, there's always a bull market somewhere. Mm. And I think it's our job to look globally and find that bull market. So, you know, kind of wherever, wherever we need to go to, to find the opportunities, we are going to go. Okay. Uh, yeah, but it's done on a stock-by-stock basis. Do you tend to find better opportunities in different markets? It's a global opportunities, right? Do you f- tend to find them in Europe or Asia or where? So, historically, since we uh, the fund, and I'm going to get, you know, I think since inception, we have been North American focused. Um, and that has been a, you know, a, a good call um, on our part, uh, you know, just given you can, you can, if you read the newspaper, you can probably tell that, uh, you know, the economy and the stock market in Europe and Asia has not done very well the last, um, you know, three years. Uh, but we, you know, we, we are, you know, we start in, in North America and then we kind of look outward to, you know, Europe and Asia. And I think there is a perception of, ooh, you know, Outside of North America, it's risky. Um, and I think kind of we want to be opportunistic. That's one of the, you know, it's a then fun name, um, but we really are opportunistic investors. We are not that investing in the European market as a whole. We're not investing in the Asian market as a whole. We don't necessarily have to have a view on, you know, a macro top-down view or a bottom-up view from, you know, the individual markets. What we are trying to find are idiosyncratic mispricings. So if we are, you know, call it 50 core names between Chris and I, we only need a handful of stocks outside of, outside of uh, you know, North America or in any specific geography to really drive returns for, for, um, for, for clients. And, you know, going back to the point of volatility, volatility creates dislocation and dislocation creates mispricing. Mm. So. I know, you know, I think the, the trajectory and it's, you know, my, uh, you know, my brokerage statements, your brokerage statements probably don't like volatility, but when we're staring at opportunities, that is what creates the mispricing and embeds future returns. So I think that's what, you know, we're paid to do is to look through the uncertainty, take the, the pain of that volatility in the fund and, you know, use that as an opportunity to generate performance. Uh, as Charles pointed out, tremendous performance in the first 60 days, I think he said, 10% and so on. Uh, is there a lot of turnover? So the turnover has been roughly 100% since we started the fund. If you had asked me ex ante when we started, you know, what's your turnover going to be? I probably would have guessed like 50% or less. Mm. So, you know, I think going back to, you know, volatility and the, the turnover has been much higher than we've expected, I think, because we've seen two or three different markets. Mm. Um, you know, I can tell you, the, you know, in March of uh, 2020, when we got sent home uh, to work from home, we shifted the portfolio a lot. So during periods of uh, dislocation, we have been very, very active. And um, that you know, I think the reality is the portfolio that generated performance in, um, you know, February, we'll call it, Feb- you know, January, February, March of 29, or, uh, 2020 was not going to be the portfolio that was going to generate performance in April, May, June of 2020. And I think you've seen these different cycles, and I think at, at the margin, you need to adjust. 
Um, and I think you need, to, you need to adjust and adapt to the market environment that you're in and be opportunistic and go where the opportunities are. Um, I think in general, the, the, the turnover should trend down or we would expect it to trend down, um, assuming we're not in a market like we've seen in 2020. Well, this is kind of... <laughs> I, talk about the broader marketplace because when you get interest rate changes and then you get, I don't know, earnings coming out from companies and companies cutting workforces, and it, those are all events. Uh, and this would seem to be a more event-driven time in my mind, what do you think? Yeah, we, we, you know, we don't want to really, fo- we, we kind of don't say events, it's more, you know, we're looking for mispricings. So we are looking for mispricings. When we look out three years, we think they're gonna correct in two years or less. So inherently, in many cases, we are, we, there is a catalyst, right? I think the reality is you can buy cheap stocks. Um, at some point, the market's gotta agree with you. If you, the market doesn't agree with you, then you're just wrong. Um, so we tend to look for those elements of change or dislocation where there's a forcing mechanism for the market to pay attention. And it can be a management change. You know, I, I was, you know, when I was an analyst, for example, you know, Canadian, I was the analyst on um, Canadian Pacific when, you know, we were going through the, the proxy battle and Pershing Square was involved. And I was the analyst, and CP had just constantly, like, underperformed Canadian uh, national for, you know, decades. And then something changed, right? You had Hunter Harrison come in, and it's, you know, that was, that was a kind of a formative event in, in my education in showing how differently a business can be run under two different management teams. Um, and then you know, we've had that, we had that again, you know, I think Hugo was on here today, maybe, you know, or yesterday, and he's, you know, stock we talked about in the past is, you know, Chipotle, and how that business was run by a founder, you know, in many cases, companies um, grow to the point where you need professional management, and the, and the founder can't, maybe can't adapt, and then, you know, you had this great manager come in, Brian Nickel, who had run the Taco Bell prior to his time at Chipotle, and it was, like, it was like you were, you were witnessing two different companies. And you know, so, so there is that element of that catalyst of, okay, here's a management change. Or you know, a, a different example could be you have a really profitable business. And we see this in many cases where a management team has, um, they have a gem of a business. And they take all that money from the gem business and they start putting it into businesses that are not as good because they want to get bigger, right? If you get bigger, you get to fly on a private jet, you get to go to more dinners. It's not necessarily the best case for, um, for investors, um, but it's good for the management team. And in some cases, you know, you can have that catalyst event where maybe they divest. You have this great business and maybe they divest a money losing business. And then suddenly you're left with a new entity and the market has to reevaluate its future expectations for that business. Um, and that's an, that would be some sort of, of transition where we can form a differentiated view of the future that maybe the market is slow or not paying attention to. Hmm. Questions from the app. Uh, are there opportunities to invest in technology in the small cap space? So um, we historically, you know, so technology right now is not, you know, historically has not been a large weight in the fund. I think I have experienced, I was covered technology 10 years ago on the Canadian team. Um, we do more, I would say, in 
gar uh, kind of GARP software, companies that actually make money. I think we're seeing a lot more opportunities. Um, you mentioned kind of layoffs and companies doing layoffs. There are a lot of software companies that should be inherently profitable, but aren't. And I think there's a lot of inefficient spending that you see at software companies. And you know, there are, you know, we, we call there's two types of CEOs. There's, there, are, there are summer CEOs and winter CEOs. And I think you're gonna find out pretty quickly who's a winter CEO and who's a summer CEO in the next, you're kind of already seeing it in the next six months. And um, you know, I think going back to the last tech bubble, you know, I think there were a lot of champions that came out of that period. Um, but they were kind of, there was an outside forcing mechanism that you know, they, they, they had to focus on the products that were most profitable. They had to get rid of unproductive workforces. And I think we're trying to, to filter through the, the swamp of you know, which companies are structurally unprofitable and which ones are gems that just need to be kind of slimmed down and, and maybe reorganized a little bit, but could be like, you know, the champions in the next five or 10 years. You came out of the Fidelity system, the incubator that is Fidelity. So here's a question from the app. How does Fidelity's research benefit a small cap investor specifically? Yeah. So this is one of the um, big differentiators that Fidelity has, particularly on the small cap side. So you know, I mentioned that, that big global universe. So if you, if you don't, you slim it down, there's I think 6,400 companies in the index, and that sounds like a massive number, and it is. Um, but if you, we put some light guardrails around that, so call it a billion dollars in market cap, a couple million dollars a day in daily liquidity. You get that list down to about 2,500 names. If you then exclude some of the, you know, the industries that Chris and I don't really focus on, uh, banks, uh, you know, commodity companies, utilities, uh, biotech companies, um, that list shrinks to about 1,500. Um, and then, you know, we've been doing this for called, you know, 10 years. So there's kind of a lot of built up cumulative experience. And we have a focus list of, let's call it six or 700 names. And that's split roughly, roughly four, 400, 500 in the US, uh, a couple hundred in Europe, and maybe 50 to 100 in Asia. And that's kind of our focus list. And then, you know, we work with the analysts. So there's 140 analysts that we have at Fidelity mm. um, across the world. We have boots on the ground in every single geography in which we or, uh, in which we invest, and they are. You know, we get the. We used to be a big paper pack, right? Where you drop it on your head, you get a concussion. Yeah. So you get that every morning. You know, I, I get up with my kids at 5 a.m. and the first thing I do is I start flipping through research. So what's been published overnight, um, and you know, what opportunities, who, what company meetings have have, have analysts had, what, what what field trips have they been on, which conferences have they gone to. Where are the opportunities? And I, you know, I think you've been doing it long enough, you can filter pretty quickly on the things that kind of check all your boxes. And um, you know, I can kind of give you know, an interesting example that, um, that an analyst, an, an idea that an analyst brought me kind of at the start of, um, well, I guess mid-2020. It's a company called Dictirin. And I'm gonna guess most people have probably never heard of this. Um, they are a Belgian family holding company. And they own a jewel asset called Belron. Belron, still probably never heard of it, but you've definitely probably used their service. They, own, they are the biggest auto glass manufacturer uh, repair company in the world. They, in Canada, they own Speedy Glass. Hmm. And um, this is a great business. If you're familiar with Boyd Services in Canada, it's a similar business, um, but they are a dominant, dominant business. And um, you know, they, the family, 
sold, uh, call it 50% of the company, to a private equity company. And that was the change that the analysts flagged to us. They said, hey, there's this, you know, this decent, you know, this pretty good business, it's underperformed for a long time, but they just sold 50% of the business to Clayton DeBillier and Rice, which is a private equity company out of, uh, out of the US. Okay, well, that's interesting. They sold it at a, $3 billion, a valuation that implied a $3 billion EV. That's interesting, okay, we followed the company. Um, you know, 18 months later, margins had gone from 5% to almost 20%. So profitability had almost quadrupled. The stock hadn't gone anywhere, that's interesting. Um, and that's when we started our position, because we could see the fundamentals were moving in the right, in the right direction. Um, the stock hadn't gone anywhere, probably because it was buried inside of a, a Belgian holding company. But lo and behold, we know the one thing about private equity is they have to monetize at some point. So we knew that there was going to be a monetization, or knew. We were pretty confident that there was going to be a monetization event within two to three years. And just following the profitability and some of the, the valuation and private, private value metrics that, that we follow, we were pretty darn sure that there, you know, if it was a $3 billion market cap, a 3 billion euro market cap, they created at least $3 billion of value. So you know, there's a bag of money in the corner, you just gotta wait and go pick it up. And you wake, you know, we wake up one morning and you know, they hadn't sold, they, the, the private equity company had sold half of their stake to another private equity company. And they hadn't sold it for like $3 billion. They had sold it at $21 billion valuation. So it had gone up 7x. And you know, the stock has more than tripled um, in, in like the, the three years that we've owned it. That's an example of a stock that you are never gonna find. You're never gonna screen for that. You're never gonna stumble across that. It's having the analysts, those 140 analysts on the ground doing the analytical work and then pushing the ideas up the funnel to the portfolio managers that we have a fidelity that you're not gonna have at a smaller shop. Wow, uh, great story. Uh, do you have any exposure to Canadian small caps at the moment? Uh, yes, we do. Um, it's actually, I think at this point, a relatively uh, overweight relative to the benchmark. So Canada, you know, one of the things that we, that we um, uh, want to kind of emphasize is that we are a small cap fund that invests globally. You know, I think it's global small cap. We're a small cap fund that invests globally. What do I mean by that? You know, if you are looking for small cap exposure and you only invest in a Canadian small cap fund, you are only seeing 5% of the, to of the total universe. If you invest in a US small cap fund, um, you're only seeing, call it 50, 55% of the universe. You know, we, have, we want to take the biggest opportunity set possible, see all of the opportunities, and then be a, uh, opportunistic across geography, across sector, to find the best 40, 50, 60 stocks that we can find, um, regardless of where they happen to be headquartered. Um, you know, I think that can be, particularly in Europe, you might, you know, many European companies, they might be, you might have a Swedish company, but, you know, one company we invested in, for example, had most of their business was in the U.S. So is that a U.S. company or a Swedish company? Mm. Um, you know, the headquarters are in Sweden, but most of the business is in the U.S. So, um, but yeah, so, you know, Canadian companies, yeah, we, we, we have, we probably own three or four, four or four Canadian stocks right now. Mm. Uh, another question from the app, how do you manage risk? Yeah, so uh, on my tour of duty, uh, you know, that, that you mentioned that generalist uh, assignment, I was actually uh, an assistant portfolio manager for Dan DuPont on Northstar. 
So when you work with Dan, you start to uh, have downside protection like beat into your skull. Um, <laughs> and you know, there's three types of risk. Or you know, Dan often talk about three types of risk. You have business risk, balance sheet risk, valuation risk. Um, so you know, we can't control the stock quote, but we can control what we buy. And you know, to kind of going back to my, my earlier comment on quality. So when we talk about business risk, it's 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 that it's, it, it is that it's you know, does this business generate cash? Uh, do they have predictable revenue? Do they have low customer concentration? You know, I think the like, I've seen too many. There are, there are examples of companies. You know, you have a 20, 30 percent customer, and you wake up and they're gone, and the stock's down 50 percent. Like. You know, you just you see these these types of events, and you just like I am. That is not going to happen to me. Um, uh, balance sheet risk. So you know, it's not just how much debt do they have. It is what is the liquidity or uh, what is the uh, maturity profile? Do they need to roll it? And it, particularly in today's environment, it, it actually is important to know whether it is bank debt or bond debt. If you have bank debt, you can work with your creditors to. Um, you know, push out maturities, for example. Uh, bonds are, you know, you trip a covenant, you might have to declare bankruptcy. So it's a lot less lenient um, than, than, than bank debt, for example. And then valuation risk. I think, you know, I, you know, I'm almost allergic to paying more than, you know, 20-ish times earnings for a, a stock, no matter how, you know, exceptional it is. Um, you know, we want to when we're when we're looking for that those compounder type companies, we want to find companies that are growing and can, you know are are compounding with the earnings growth of the business, and that we aren't going to have any negative detraction from a multiple that goes you know from 50 to you know 20 times earnings, for example. I think that's that's something that got forgotten in the last three years. It doesn't matter how good the business is if you pay too much for it, you're still not going to make money. So we tend to focus more on GARP. Where you know there is valuation upside versus downside. Uh, okay, uh, we have one last chart: Fidelity Global Small Cap Opportunities Fund Overview. Where do you think this fits in somebody's investment portfolio? Uh, yeah, so I think for you know ninety percent of people out there, this is not a replacement for a core S and P five hundred or TSX uh, fund. Uh, however, you know. The alpha-rich nature of this asset class, I think, makes it an incredible complement to enhance the overall return profile of a client portfolio. And I think having that open uh, blank slate for you know, the biggest opportunity set, combine that with the Fidelity Research Machine to generate a lot of um, you know, alpha from the asset class, I think, is, is, is incredibly valuable and, and an incredible complement for, for a client portfolio. And just quickly, what are you going to do? How, what is your self-discipline when you do run up 10%? Because if I'm hearing that number, I'm going, oh, my God. If he does that in another 60 days, that'd be pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's three reasons to sell a stock, right? I mean, there's, there's two good reasons and, and one not so good one. So, you know, the best case scenario is you buy a stock, it goes up, and it hits your target price, you sell. Um, the second best, you know, example is you just find a better idea to buy. So we try to, we try to operate on a one-for-one, on one in-out basis. So we have our portfolio, and it's not just when we're looking at a new stock, is this a good stock to buy? It's, is this something that's better than something we already own? Right. Right, so you know, the ideas are constantly fighting one another to stay in the, in the portfolio. 
The not so good uh, scenario on why you sell a stock is you were just wrong. And you know, I think the reality is in this job, you're making predictions about the future and you're gonna be wrong sometimes. Um, and I think one of the, uh, you know, working with Mark Schmel for a long time is you have to be absolutely ruthless about taking losses. I think that's what differentiates you know, great money managers from mediocre money managers. Um, hope is not, you know, he, he often used to say, hope is not an investment strategy. Hmm. Um, it doesn't matter where you bought the stock, doesn't matter if you made money, doesn't matter, matter if you lost money. Every day you wake up, and I, you know, I tell our analysts, there are no holds. You're either willing to put more capital into that idea at today's price, or you sell it. So you don't pitch me a hold. <laughs> we'll leave it there, Connor. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.